The reading today comes from Matthew 2, 1 through 12. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly, and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go, and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word, that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, you may be seated. Uh, like I said earlier, my name is Vincent Hoppy. If I haven't met you, I'd love to meet you, tell you more about Grace and Peace Church. Grace and Peace exists to bring the healing of the gospel to every broken place. Uh, though it might be a little difficult to understand how in the world that is our vision, especially if for the past few weeks you've been joining us during Advent or during Christmas because I've been talking about how uncomfortable the incarnation, the coming of God into flesh should make all of us. So maybe we should you know, talk about uh, just how, how uncomfortable uh, a baby can make us. That's, that's basically how it has been making us feel, or at least me feel. And today, it doesn't get any better because what I want to talk about is our cosmic authority problem, our cosmic authority problem. Uh, a few days ago, I was driving in my car and had a good chuckle at NPR at the expense of a blundering criminal. This blundering criminal walks up to the desk at a bank in Alaska and leaves a note and says, give me the money. And so the teller gives him, a, gives him the $1,000 and presses the panic button. The burglar goes out, the robber goes then to the department store. And at the department store, he decides to disguise himself. You know, figuring no one's going to notice me now when he buys a hat, a green vest, and to top it off to really disguise himself. As he is leaving the department store, he sees the Salvation Army bell ringer and he gives money into the Salvation Army pot. Of course they recognize him and they pick him up. And then they asked him, what were you doing in the department store? He's like, I'm trying to disguise myself. Why would you ever suspect someone who gives a donation to the Salvation Army would ever rob a bank? And so I laughed, but it caught me off guard. 
And what caught me off guard was the fact that I, and many of us, is like this robber. We think that we can disguise ourselves. We think that what we have done is not so bad, and so just a little bit of donating will cover us up just enough, keep the authorities off of our back. But what, is confront, what we're confronted with here in our text is that our problem is much deeper. That the problem of the world, the problem of your heart, the problem of my heart, is that we are serving a king who is not Jesus. We have committed treason at the heart level. You see, we live in a world that thinks that we can cover ourselves up and that we can maintain control and that no one will know that there's something deeply wrong in our heart. We have the wrong diagnosis. This is the problem. We think the problem with all of us is simply doing just bad things. If your view of sin is simply doing just bad things, if that is the problem of humanity, then we don't need a savior. We don't, most certainly don't need anyone to die for us. What we need is some good therapy, a little counseling, maybe 12 effective habits of a highly effective leader. That's what we need. We don't possibly need light into darkness. We don't possibly need hope. We don't need healing or renewal. What we need is a good self-help book. But how's those self-help books working for us? A little advice. You know what it's like? It's like giving a donation to the Salvation Army, hoping that the cops ain't going to pick us up. That's... The problem, we have the wrong diagnosis. But if the problem is that your heart is fundamentally aligned to the kingdom of self over the kingdom of God, then you know that you're held guilty of cosmic treason. Psychologically, we can actually say that the problem really is the ego. We have an allegiance problem, and Matthew confronts us. Matthew confronts us with this troubling confrontation of Christmas, And here it is. What are you going to do with King Jesus? What are you going to do with King Jesus? And and the answer revealed in our text leaves you with only two viable options. It's either crown him or kill him. Crown him or kill him. And so we're going to look at three ways that we can either crown him or kill him. We will look at the way of Herod, the way of the scribes and priests, and the way of the Magi. I know, you might be thinking, hey Vince, this is a bit extreme. Really, two options? Uh, Yeah, that, that seems to be what the author Matthew is presenting us with. Matthew's gospel begins with the genealogy of a king and ends with the pronouncement of a king. And he's not just some tribal king. He says that he's the king of the whole universe. He says all authority, all authority, that means like all of it, like there's nothing strange in the Greek or anything. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore, make disciples of uh, just Jews. No. Make make, uh, uh, disciples of, of just the hipsters. No, it says, of every nation, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. You see, he was envisioned in the book of Matthew. Matthew's trying to tell you that he's the true Davidic king. 
to bring the nations together, to fulfill the Abrahamic promise to be a blessing to all nations. So you have this confrontation. Either he's the king of everything, including your life, or he's the king of nothing. Either he has it all in your life, or he has nothing. Either he has all rights, all claims, all authority in your life, or you should have nothing to do with him. If he's a good teacher, if he's just a good teacher, how can he judge you? Take his advice, leave it, but he has no authority over you if he's just a good teacher. But if he's God in the flesh, coming to confront a world, look out. Maybe we should be afraid. You know, he's God in, God in the flesh, come to earth in Jesus Christ to reign as a king. You can't maintain the authority of your own life. Or as Woody from Toy Story says it in your reflection, this town ain't big enough for the two of us. This town ain't big enough for the two of us. Um, you get Woody's good, but Thomas Nagel, he's an atheist philosopher, states it this way. Same thing as this town ain't big enough for the two of us. But he says, I want atheism to be true. And I am made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't just that I don't believe in God, and naturally I hope that my belief is right. No, no, no. I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. My guess is that this cosmic authority problem is not rare. You see, Thomas Nagel gets it. If there's a God, and he actually came down and became a babe, and became, came to be king of your life and king of this world, here's the problem. Either you're going to continue to try and hold on to control of your life, or you're going to give it up to Jesus. And the scary thing is, is you are not qualified enough to even be king of your life. And some of us know it. Some of us deeply know it. I will warn you, it isn't the purpose of this text to tell you how much the Magi knew concerning the divinity of Christ. You know, but, they are in, but Matthew is encouraging readers to bow down and worship Jesus like the Magi. They're the ones you're to model yourselves after. Herod... And the scribes and the priests, they're just foils for the Magi. You're supposed to look at them, these, uh, the, the, the Jewish king, who's supposed to be the representative of the people, and the scribes and the priests, the religious people, and go, what y'all thinking? And then you have Magi, some horoscope-reading guys from Iraq and Iran, coming to worship Jesus, which ought to blow your mind. Okay, so let's take a look at the three ways. First, we'll start off with the way of Herod. Herod, he shows us the way of the irreligious. He's a great builder. He made big building promises and got them done. Okay, he did the second temple expansion. He was able to increase the number of forts. He's a person who would agree with Nagel, though, that they would much rather prefer if God didn't exist. Herod the Great was ruler in Jerusalem from 37 B.C. to 4 B.C. Okay. Now, if you're really paying attention, you just realize, like, wait, 
aren't we talking about Herod? How did he die in 4 BC? Yes, I know. The calendar is wrong. Big whoop. It doesn't disprove anything, okay? Cool. You guys got that? Great. Wonderful. So he dies in 4 BC, all right? Because you're probably like, Jesus was born in 0 AD. Well, shucks. Okay. You know, that means Jesus was born closer to 6 or 7 BC. Herod was ruthless, though. He was known for his violent treatment of people, so much so that the killing of children under two, which would be one of the stories right after this, in the Bethlehem region, which would have been about 20 to 30 little kids, doesn't even merit any mentioning in the history of Herod. Why? Because he did things much worse. He did things much worse worse. So here, these eastern astrologers, they come to his door and want to know about the new king, and the current king is like, excuse me, what you talking about? And that's an understatement. The, 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 in the text, it says that he was troubled. He was troubled. That is the understatement of a century. Why? Because you know that he goes out and kills 20 to 30 babies, Troubled is the wrong word. He is messed up. He is ill in the head. Okay? And according to Eastern astrology, though, whenever a large falling star or comet would be seen in the sky, they assumed that a king's reign was coming to an end and a new one was about to begin. So now Herod is startled. Okay, the text says that Israel was troubled along with him. So there's two ways of looking like, like Israel was troubled along with him. One way is to see, like, well, maybe... You know, they see Herod is all like displaced and upset, and I don't know what he's going to do. He's kind of crazy. Or the other option, and the way it reads, it sounds like Israel also was troubled. They've got a cosmic authority problem. A new ruler has come? Well, that's bad news for us. And all of Israel was troubled with him. So Herod is left with two choices, either to worship or resist, to crown the new king or to kill him. And uh, in the text where it says, Herod kind of is like, hey, go find him and report back to me, you know, what exactly is happening. Do you know what voice comes inside my head? It is from the princess bride, and it is the wife of of, of Miracle Max. And, And in the background, I just hear in my head, liar! Liar! You know, why? Because, because I'm envisioning this person like, hey, I want to go worship him too. Guys, go, go bring him over. You know, go tell me where he's at so I can, I can worship him with my dagger. You know, and that's like, that's wrong. And I'm just sitting there going, this is messed up. So he, Herod doesn't go immediately. And later he'll send a death squad to kill Jesus and we are not too dissimilar. Matthew, by making masses of trouble, uh, uh, making the masses troubled along with Herod, tries to show that there is a little Herod in each of our hearts. There's a little Herod in each of our hearts. The sin from the beginning of the Bible was that Adam sinned because, the, and the rest of humanity fell along with him because they believed the lie that they could be happy without God that they could have a good life without him, that they could be their own kings, the masters of their own universe, and they didn't have to worry about the true king. That true king, he's just holding out on you. And if you're true to yourself, 
then you can live your best life now. Or like I like to say, so your best millennial life now. It's, I don't know why I say that. So, even for Christians, there is this residual, habitual actions of self-preservations protecting our kingdom. It is the air we breathe. We're told that there isn't anything wrong with us. Baby, you were born this way. You are to be true to yourselves. But here's the deal. If Matthew's correct, if the Bible is correct, then we can't possibly be true to ourselves. We're people made in the image of God. We're made to glorify him. And without worshiping him, without following him, without coming under his rule, without living under his sexual morality, we're not possibly being true to our true selves, who we were meant and created to be. You're just making it up as you go as your own king. So there's a little Herod in each of us. And how does it come out? Do you ever get mad? Do you get angry? It's because God's king is it because God's kingdom is threatened? Oh no way. When God's threatened his king God's kingdom is threatened, you know what I do? I change the channel. All right? We're more threatened, we get more angry because we're not getting our way. Our comfort is threatened. How about whenever you feel the twinge of anxiety? You get the fight or flight response. What am I going to fight for? Uh, I'm going to fight so that I don't feel so insecure. Like, whenever we feel insecure, we feel like we might be blown away by the actions of others. So we rise up and we take action. We double the guard. We take to arms. We yell at our spouses. We tell our kids to get in line. We yell at them. We grab them by the arm. We do those things because our kingdom is threatened, not because God's kingdom is threatened. And then what do we do? Instead of saying, I'm responsible for my own death, mess here we say my kids made me do it the my workplace environment is toxic i've got toxic friends instead of being responsible for our own mess saying that we're too busy trying to protect our own kingdom the kingdom of self the kingdom of me we want to blame other people See, this constant defending of our own little kingdom is going to get exhausting. You're going to be tired of it. The little Herod is there, always inside of you, trying to protect yourselves. But in Matthew 11, Jesus says of a person, the person John the Baptist, there has been none born of women who is greater than John the Baptist. But what does John the Baptist say about Jesus? John the Baptist says that he is unworthy to tie the strap on his sandal. Which is kind of telling because Jewish slaves were not allowed to tie the straps of sandals. They were slaves and they were not allowed to do that. It was too undignifying for someone to do that. Especially a Jewish person. So what is he trying to say? John the Baptist is trying to tell us that true greatness is through serving and loving and found in the person of Jesus. That's where true greatness is. John the Baptist says, I must decrease 
and he must increase. John the Baptist tells us, I am not the Christ. You are too unqualified to run your own life. So must, all of us must confront the little Herod in, in us. We need to confess this act of rebellion against God. We must know that the heart is not inclined to actually love God, but is in hostility toward God and against Him. So we must confront the little Herod in all of us. We don't want His rules for sexual morality. We don't want that. We must know that the default mode of our heart is hostility toward God. We are like Herod. We want to kill him instead of having him rule over us. No one really stands indifferent, so crown him or kill him. The uh, writer, philosopher Aldous Huxley in Ends and Means writes this, I had motives for not wanting the world to have a meaning, and consequently I assumed that it had none, and was able without any difficulty to find satisfying reasons for this assumption. The philosopher who finds no meaning in the world is not concerned exclusively with a problem in pure metaphysics. Oh no. He is concerned to prove that there is no valid reason why he personally should not do as he wants to do. For myself, as no doubt for most of my friends, the philosophy of meaningless was essentially an instrument of liberation from a certain system of morality. We objected to the morality because it interfered with our sexual freedom. The supporters of this system claimed that it embodied the meaning, the Christian meaning they insisted of the world. There was one admirably simple method of confuting these people and justifying ourselves in our erotic revolt. We would deny that the world had any meaning whatever. And oftentimes, that is the motive of our heart. We don't want a king. We don't want a God. We don't want anyone to tell us that we're wrong. And so what do we do? We cook the books to get God on our side. God wouldn't tell me no. God would tell me yes. And this is how we would do it. And so we go to our Bibles, we scour it and say, see, God agrees with me. That's the way of Herod. Now the way of the scribes and the Pharisees is a little different, okay? These were people in charge of the temple built by Herod and they were in place by the power and authority of Herod which was given to him by the Romans. So they enjoy power, position, and privilege. But their answer to the news of a savior was more of one of indifference. A savior is born. Cool, he'll be born in Bethlehem. We're going to chill here and wait and see what happens. That's indifference. Okay, But in the end, they are happy with Herod going to send a death squad to kill this king. They just go along with it. They don't say anything. You know, they give the prophecy of Micah, they hang out in the palace. They don't go to worship, they don't move. Their heads are filled with right and good doctrine, but their hearts are filled with lead. They have more affection for their status their position, and their puppet masters than they do for the God of the universe. The Roman occupation and Herod's reign, it meant security for them. They got it good. 
They're living the good life, their best life now. They could continue without being critiqued. They didn't have to face criticism. They didn't have to worry about people taking their job. They had job security. But if a new leader, a new regime was coming, it meant they might lose everything. And so what do they do? They comply with an immoral leader. They let Herod kill people by the hundreds during his regime. They would let Herod Antipas, Herod's son, divorce his wife in order to marry his brother's wife. To which John the Baptist says, "Uh uh-uh, not around here. And John the Baptist gets beheaded and given as a gift for his wife's birthday. Jesus would call this man, Herod Antipas, a fox, which means rich, which is in a ritually unclean animal. And if Jesus is saying that you're ritually unclean, guess what? Chances are you probably are. But these are the people that the scribes and the priests, the really religious people, kind of hung out with. Uh, excuse me? That's a little... Their fear enables them to stand idly by while leaders are immoral. They are complicit when they don't speak out. They like what they are getting from their leaders and then they would leverage their theology and doctrine for their benefit. Think about it. How often is data or verses in the Bible or information used to get what we want? God's on my side. See, we're all cooking the books in our favor. All this proves to whom our allegiances lie. And it is obvious it wasn't with Jesus at this time. Their allegiance was to the ruling political party and not the kingdom of God. They worshipped the creature over the creator. They bowed down to political leaders rather than the most powerful Lord. Uh, Let me say this. I'm going to need to cut a little bit of tension here. Because unless you've been living uh, under a rock these past few weeks, you're probably wondering if I'm talking about our current political situation. Uh, In a way, I am. I was deathly afraid to talk about this section of Scripture and about about the scribes and the priests at this point because of the way it sounded in my ears. These people are bowing down to political leaders. Yes, it's in the back of my mind. And so if you identify as a Republican or if you identify as a Democrat, here we go. If you uncritically defend your party and can't affirm anything about the opposing party, then you might need to consider that you're putting too much trust in a party to give you what you want. You're baptizing a political agenda over the kingdom of God. And that goes for both sides. Both parties, have thing, if, both parties have things to affirm and plenty to criticize. Because remember, Jesus says that his kingdom is not of this world and that we're citizens of that kingdom and it can't be, and it can't be branded one way with elephants or with donkeys. You'll find that Jesus is way too liberal and progressive for conservatives and that he's absolutely too conservative for progressives. You can't baptize your political party into the service of your kingdom. You can't baptize it into the service of God's kingdom. Guess what? God doesn't need a defender for his church. He's got one. His name is Jesus. 
Allegiance to Jesus means that we will speak out against the immorality of our own party affiliations. We need to learn how to be self-critical about the things in our party, and we don't need to defend every action. We can rest secure in the fact that in the end, neither a Republican or a Democrat will sit on the throne of the universe. And more than that, the one who does actually sit as king of the world, he loves you. He loves you. And he came down on Christmas to rule in your heart by love, not force, not coercion, not taxes. No. Not health care penalties. He came to rule in your heart by giving up his life for you. So we must know that we're not above critique, each and every one of us. Um, I have a confession to make. Uh, I'm pretty sure in Dante's Inferno, at least for me, one of the rings of hell, I'm thinking it's the, like, the deepest one for me, would have been li- me listening to my own sermons. Okay? I hate listening to my own voice. I sound like a middle school science teacher. Sorry for offending any middle school science teachers out there. I hate that about myself. And so the way I get around that and show that Jesus is king is I have to force myself to listen to it every once in a while. But luckily, we're a little behind on putting some of them up, so I've been just reading my old manuscripts. (laughs) Praise the Lord. So I've been reading my own manuscripts recently and going, oh my gosh, that is not good. And I'm learning to be self-critical all the time. I don't have it together. I'm not perfect. I struggle on a regular basis with trying to just be indifferent, be on the sidelines, trying to leverage. I I have been ordained in the Presbyterian Church of America. Obviously, God's hand is on me. How could I possibly, possibly be critiqued by anybody? (laughs) Whatever. The Pope? Let me go correct him. You know, that's, that's the attitude of my heart. But I think what, what Christmas does and when Jesus shows up, maybe we need to critique our own hearts first. We need to see ourselves under that microscope. Lastly, let's look at the way of the Magi, though. This is the way you're encouraged to look at yourselves and to act and to live into the world. We're encouraged to humble ourselves like the Magi who come to worship Jesus. These are not the first-rate candidates to come and worship. Okay? These are not the people you'd expect, it, expect to come. They're probably from modern-day Iran or Iraq. They're astrologers. They probably had, to do, had more in common with Miss Cleo than they did with Billy Graham. Okay? Uh, Miss Cleo, 1990s television sidekick. Look it up. Those commercials are awesome. Anyway, I'm not endorsing psychics. Just... So some Middle Eastern horoscope reader, re- readers, astrologers, these are the first to humble themselves and worship Jesus. You mean to tell me, Vince, that dream interpreting, fortune telling, organ cutting magicians come to offer gifts to Jesus before the religious and civic leaders of God's own people? Yes. Yes. And do you know how they told, they told the future and interpreted dreams? They would take like organs, like the heart of a cow, chop it in half, and for whatever, like whatever piece landed which way, they would like, this is what it means. These are the people coming to Jesus. It is not the buttoned up seminary scholars. No, they're indifferent. They're like, 
we'll wait and see if he survives Herod. Woo! You know, that's, it's sad. You see, these guys, they up and left. They humbled themselves and came to Jesus. They spent their time, money, and energy into traveling across deserts. Okay? Across deserts with marauding bands of men who were willing, willing to, to, uh, to, to rob them. They journey to a palace to find people of faith, and all they find is defiance. And so what do we do? How in the world are we like them? So what do we do in our faith to be more like magi? And I would say this. We need to daily reenact pilgrimage. We need to daily go to Jesus with our thoughts, our prayers, our anxieties, our worries. No matter where you are, how messed up, how dark it is, how far you think you are from Jesus, get up and go to him. He's not going to spank you. He's there to receive you. So you daily pilgrimage to him. And then we see that they give gifts. These magi gave gold, frankincense, and myrrh, which were gifts for a king. But it's not for our kingdom. It's not to get God on their side because they left and who knows if they ever saw him again. But it says that they worshipped him. They bowed down to him. And it was for the building of his kingdom. No doubt it was probably used for him to escape Herod to go to Egypt. These gifts. And so they take their time, talents, and efforts. And they give it to Jesus. For his glory. And so in the same way. A daily act of giving your time, talents, and, G- and, and time, talents, and efforts for the glory of God in some little way is important. It could come down into the smallest, tiniest thing: washing the dishes for your spouse, uh, cleaning, uh, putting a roll of toilet paper on for your roommate. That is kingdom living, right there especially if you put it on the right way. But, (laughs) don't get me started. But, that is the daily act of giving to him. And then I would also say, we need to reenact the daily act of rebellion. Rebellion against who? Rebellion against Herod. Herod's like, hey, come back over here. Tell me where you find him. You know, so I can worship him too. Whatever, man. Uh, And they receive a vision. And they're like, we are not going back that way. And so they rebel. They rebel against Herod. They decide that they're not going to be complicit with someone's evil schemes anymore. Uh, They are like Kanye West, where they say, tell the devil that I'm going on strike. I've been working for him my whole life. You need to actively go on strike. Actively go on strike. And you do this in some of the weirdest ways. You could do the way of Herod under his schemes whenever your spouse tells you, you did this wrong. You made me upset. You hurt my feelings by doing what? Not defending yourself. By saying, maybe you're right. Maybe you're right. 
You give the act of defiance by giving of your time, talents, efforts, and money. Spending time with those who are less than you. That's how you do this act of defiance and rebellion. You go away from self-protection and toward self-giving because we know about Jesus who is the self-giver. So with the Magi, we don't see the technicalities that qualify for them for the faith. No, they probably didn't have a master's degree in divinity. Is there a more snobby, you know, master's degree of divinity? I have mastered the divine. That's snobby. It's just me. Uh, The Magi came to worship the true king who doesn't kill to get his kingdom, but dies to give you his. We worship the true king who doesn't kill to get his kingdom, but he dies to give you his. It is the Christian belief that tells you that holding on to our little kingdoms will cause you to lose the kingdom. But giving up control on our little kingdoms, we will gain his kingdom. By saying, I am underqualified to control my own life and I need this one to control it for me. I pledge my allegiance to him and him alone. We're doing that on a daily basis. We root out the residual effects of self-kingdom for his. Because Jesus is the true true king who's who's worthy of admiration. But he doesn't make you die for it. No, he dies for you. He turns it on its head. You don't need to be defensive because he was made defenseless as a child. You don't need to sit on a throne of pride and ego anymore because he was the king that wore the crown of thorns in a purple robe and was placed on a cross for a throne. He got what your selfish, self-centered kingdom what my selfish, defensive kingdom deserved. What my rebellion deserved. Life outside of the kingdom. He was taken out of the city and he was crucified on the cross the way they would kill treasonous rebels. So that other people, when they saw him hanging on the cross, would know, do not cross the Romans. That's the way Jesus died. He's the one who is worthy. He's the one who's worthy of your life. He's the one qualified enough to control your life. And so this Advent season, this Christmas, today even, I ask you, will you lose control of all the little areas in your life that you want to control? Would you let Jesus rule and reign in your heart? Will you be like a magi and humble yourself and bow down before him because he is worthy? Let us pray. Our gracious Lord and God, I pray now as we come to this table that we would receive you as King and Lord, the King who was torn apart, whose body was broken, whose blood was poured out, 
not to preserve himself or not because he was saving himself, but because he was saving us, his people. It was gracious love, self-giving. Help us now to become more like that, that we could die to self on a daily basis, that we could do self-giving, that we can rebel against selfishness by self-giving through the power of these words made visible in broken bread and poured out wine. Meet us now, Lord. Transform our hearts so that we would be more like Jesus and that the world would be refreshed and experience healing, that our families would experience that as well. Lord, be here now. Meet us now in this meal. In Jesus' name, amen. The Lord be with you. you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. Here at Grace and Peace, we come forward for the Lord's Supper. Not because you are worthy or you have it together, but rather you're probably more like a horoscope reader. You're more like a fortune teller, undeserving, no qualifications. If that is your confession, if your confession is that you need Jesus, then this table is for you. If you confess that you have been living a kingdom of self, a kingdom of me, and you want to confess that you need the kingdom of Jesus, the kingdom of vulnerability, the kingdom of self-giving, then this meal is for you. If that's not what you profess, if that's not what you confess, then we ask that you observe. You can ask me some questions afterward. We're really happy that you're here to worship with us. But if that's not what you confess, then let them pass you by. We don't want you to do anything inauthentic to where you are. But if you profess that Jesus Christ is King and Lord of your life, then He invites you, not me. God invites you to his table. We come forward. Uh, all the bread or matzo is gluten-free. There is wine on the outer ring. In, or no, wine on the inner rings. Juice on the outer rings. Juice on the outer rings. But this is a meal in faith. This is a meal of faith. In faith in the one whose body was broken. The one who gives us his kingdom. And so therefore, let us proclaim our faith is signed and sealed in this meal. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. On the night that he was betrayed, after giving thanks, Jesus took bread and he broke it and he said, This is my body, which is broken for you. Take of it and eat in remembrance of me. Likewise, after supper was ended, Jesus took the cup and he said, This cup, is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Drink of it as often as you do in remembrance of me. For as often as we eat this bread and we drink this cup, we proclaim his death until he comes again. Let us pray. Lord, meet us now in this meal. Help us to live as citizens in your kingdom, partaking of you. Be here now. In Jesus' name, amen.